Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. It even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Welcome to our Good Friday service, and it's good to see you all here today. Um, you know, this uh, service, we're not really doing announcements, we're not doing really the passing of peace. It's really just going to be a very somber reflection on the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, throughout Christian tradition, um, Good Friday is celebrated, um, obviously, three days before Jesus resurrects. And it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it, that Christians would celebrate someone's death. It sounds pretty morbid. Um, Jesus did suffer. He did experience death. And it is morbid, but it, it's morbid in a sacrificial way. Right? Uh, because in Jesus' death, you and I were forgiven. In Jesus' death, we know that death is not the end. We know that our deaths are not the end. Actually, something great was accomplished in Jesus' death, which is why we celebrate. That's why we celebrate. It's not a typical death. It's not a normal death. We'll gather again on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, to celebrate his victory over sin and death. But today, we're, we're taking a look at the Gospel of Mark here. And as Ilbum read, it's the moment of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and the verdict. And I chose this text because, you know, it's one thing to know why Jesus died. He died uh, to deliver you and me from the justice of God from our sins. We know why Jesus chose to die. But we also need to know why people chose to kill him. Right? They obviously did not understand why Jesus was dying. They had a different motive, a different intention, and God's providence and God's sovereignty and human responsibility kind of comes together to fulfill his will. But they didn't, they didn't kill Jesus for the same reasons he submitted himself to death. They weren't thinking about his love for them, God's grace for their sins. And so I, I think as exploring why uh, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes why they killed Jesus, I think it's going to help us see, it'll help us see why their situation is relevant to our situation. And it's going to see how the death of Christ was relevant to them in their time, and it's going to see how it's relevant to us right now. So the three things we're going to take a look at in our passage. First, we're going to take a look at this group, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. We're going to see their relationship with Jesus. 
Then we're going to see Jesus on trial. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus' power in this text. It doesn't look like Jesus is powerful. It looks like he's weak. It looks like he's powerless. But we're going to see here, actually, in this moment, Jesus is powerful. So those are our three points. Now, the, 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 the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, they've arrested Jesus and they're putting him on trial. Right? Why is that? Do you know why the, the chief priests and the elders are putting Jesus on trial? Well, it's because throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus was constantly challenging and he was constantly rebuking. He was constantly correcting the elders and the chief priests. He was constantly uh, overruling them because they were failing to lead God's people. And one incident of this is in Mark chapter 11. Uh, you might remember it where Jesus cleansed the temple. He chased out all the merchants that had moved into the temple to sell animal sacrifices. Uh, some commentators believe it is because selling animals in the temple was prime real estate. Right? You didn't have to get an animal outside the temple and, and bring the animal in. You can actually buy the animal at the temple right there. It was a business decision by the elders and the chief priests. But what, the, what, what this did is it left no room in the temple for people to pray. So the temple was making more money, but people weren't praying. And so Jesus said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Right? They were robbing the people of the space to pray to God. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and what? They were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. Right? Fascinating, isn't it? Throughout Jesus' life, the major problem that the chief priests and the scribes had with Jesus was simply a problem of authority. That's it. Right? They're, they're not debating with Jesus on his inaccuracy of Scripture. They can't. We see it throughout the Gospels that Jesus spoke with so much authority and power, uh, with so much spirit, that people were left in awe. They simply did not like Jesus holding them accountable to his authority. They were used to, the one, they were used to being the ones who held people accountable, and they had authority, but now it's Jesus holding them accountable, and he has the authority. Now, it's easy to, for us to think, man, these, these Pharisees, these scribes, these priests, they're so proud, right? Uh, they're so self-righteous. How could they not listen to Jesus' authority? But friends, you and I, we, we struggle with authority and we struggle with accountability in the same way, right? What do I mean by that? Well, it's very common right, for you and me, for accountability, accountability to be one way. There's something innate in us that makes us inclined to hold others accountable, but at the same time unwilling and resistant to be held accountable by others. We have no problem pointing the finger, but when it comes to ourself, right, we try to escape it at all costs. It shouldn't be like this because in the book of Romans, right, in chapter 3, what does Paul say to this church in Rome? He says, none is righteous. 
He says, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This fact of humanity is undisputable. And we should know this, that, that when we try to hold people accountable of their mistakes, right? We should know that it's not like we make less mistakes. You know, we're human. They're human. And we make just as many mistakes as we try to hold others accountable for. I mean, that, that, that's common sense. But functionally, it's so hard to practice, isn't it? We can't seem to see our own mistakes as consistently as we see the mistakes of others. And Jesus describes it this way. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is your, in your own eye? That's a good question. <laughs> Why is it that we can see so clearly the mistakes in our uh, parents, in our family members, um, you know, whoever else is driving, but when it comes to our own mistakes, when we're driving, us, in our own marriages, in our own families, it's, it's so hard to see. It's so hard to see it. I thought about this for some bit. It's like, why, okay, why can't the Pharisees see it? Why, why, do, why do I struggle to see it? Why, why, do, why do we struggle to see this? It's because we all struggle with self-worth. Self-worth. What do I mean by that? Well, ever since we're born, right, we're struggling with what percentile we're growing at how quickly we can walk or talk, how well behaved we are as a child, how we do in school, extracurricular activities, our body image, where we go to university, what we do for a living, where we live. And we put all that pressure of self-worth on ourselves and then back onto our kids and the cycle continues. We come out of the womb and we go into the grave in the pursuit of this self-worth. And we're so caught up in this cycle of self-worth when others try to hold us accountable, we can't handle it because we see it as an attack to our identity, our self-worth, our importance. So we'll defend and we'll dismiss, we'll explain, right? We'll deny and so here's what we have in our text, friends. The elders and chief priests, they have spent their entire lives building their self-worth on themselves, right? So that when Jesus comes and he corrects them, they cannot. They cannot stand it. They cannot bear it. They see it as a personal attack on their pride, on their identity. And, and they could have turned to Jesus and just said, you're right, Jesus. We are wrong. Would you forgive us? And what would have happened? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. And they repented. Jesus forgave them. And they were part of Jesus' fellowship. That's it. That's all it takes. 
to go from death to eternal life, to go from darkness into light. But the ones in our passage, there's there's so much sense of self-importance and pride. It's so offended by Jesus. Their anger is so uncontrollable that the text says they wanted to destroy Jesus. There's a real important lesson for us here. Because I think you and I, we're, we're the same. We find ourselves getting defensive, struggling with this resistance when, when, when someone is trying to hold us accountable, maybe give us some constructive criticism, some feedback. And it's because that person has placed their very finger on the foundation that you have build, building your worth and your identity on, Right? And so our pride and our identity in this self-importance that we have poured our entire life into, it gets threatened and, and so we reject, we reject the accountability. Reject. Even if it, the authority is coming from Jesus, we reject it. And we see in our text how dangerous it is. It, it leads to a council of one and like the scribes and the chief priest, it leads to war against Jesus, right? That, that's the ultimate danger of it, you know? Um, when, when I reject any kind of feedback or constructive critique, let's say it's from my wife, Jen, I'm not really just going to war against her. If it's correct, if it's sound, if it's biblical, I'm, I'm going to war against God. That's the scary thing. Unchecked, it leads to darkness and eventual disintegration, spiritual, emotional, and then death, physical. Disintegration to the grave. So I know that accountability can be a very scary thing. It's always a difficult thing, but friends, it is a good thing. It is a good thing. You know, when you go to a doctor, you want accountability, right? You want the doctor to diagnose you, give you constructive feedback. You don't want him to worry about hurting your feelings. It's a good thing, and we see it being exampled by Jesus here. Um, I love the book of Proverbs. It has so much wisdom about accountability, actually. Proverbs is about wisdom, and, and wisdom is not attained by the counsel of one, right? The, the, the book of Proverbs says, there is more hope for a fool for than one who, who neglects counsel. And Proverbs 27, 9 says here, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What does that mean? It means that an enemy won't care whether you head to disintegration or darkness or destruction. It's like, it's cool. No, man, you know, like, I'm happy you're happy. It's fine. I'm not going to give you any constructive criticism. But a friend will give you faithful wounds. Wounds hurt a little bit. But the writer here calls it faithful because they help. They're healing. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, counsel is advice from others. Plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. You see, there is so much wisdom in, in, in biblical accountability. Biblical authority. And we must remember, accountability is a two-way street. If you're going to hold someone accountable, right? These Pharisees, these chief priests, these scribes, they're trying to hold people accountable, but they're unwilling to be held accountable. But it's a two-way street. Right? That's real biblical accountability. 
Now let's go to the second point here, Jesus on trial. Now the elders and scribes and chief priests, they're angry. They don't, they don't like Jesus trying to take authority from them, trying to hold them accountable, tell, trying to tell them how to run the show. So they come together and they're trying to put Jesus to death. And they're trying to make a, a, a particular charge stick. They need one that's going to lead, lead to death. And this particular charge is that Jesus said he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem. They're saying, look, this man right here, this anarchist said he would destroy the temple. Right? According to Roman law, anarchists get immediate death. Any kind of um, revolution, they will shut that down real quick. Destruction of places of worship was a capital offense. Now, Jesus hadn't laid a finger towards any kind of harm, towards any kind of religious building. He said he was the true temple, right? And that he would be destroyed. His body would be destroyed for the sins of the world. But he never said that he would lay a finger to the Jerusalem temple. He wasn't an anarchist, but he, he was being accused of being one. And because Jesus never said the things they were charging him with, none of the testimonies agreed. Right? None of the testimonies agree. Now, if the testimonies of witnesses in a court don't agree by the rules of that time, the trial should be thrown out. It should be dismissed. But as we can see, there is nothing just about this trial. There is nothing legal about this trial. They have unlawfully arrested Jesus. They are beating him. In other gospel accounts, they spit on Jesus. They strip him naked. And many, many, many people think that Jesus was crucified on the cross with some kind of cloak covering, right, his, his private parts. But that was only reserved for Roman citizens. And if you were a criminal, you were crucified naked, right? So Jesus is, I mean, Jesus is absolutely humiliated here. They don't dismiss the case. In verse 61, the chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. He says, I am. This is an amazing statement. It's, it's an astounding statement. So astounding, so explosive. There is immediate eruption. Right? The high priest tears his garments just from Jesus saying, I am. The high priest goes nuts. He goes berserk. He rips his garments and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Why was Jesus' answer so explosive? Why was it so offensive? It's because Jesus' answer goes back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses that he's going to send him to the Pharaoh of Egypt to bring his people out of slavery. Moses is terrified. He's just a shepherd. He's 80 years old. He just wants to retire in peace. But God calls him out. And Moses asks God, when I come to the people of Israel and they ask me who has sent you, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, we'll... we'll, we'll We'll go into why, why this is a very good question for Moses in his day, but God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to them, I am has sent me to you. Now, imagine what Moses is thinking. All right, yeah, sure. I'll tell them that I am. No, he's going, I am who? <laughs> I am what? Because the ancient Egyptians had a God for everything. 
Ra was the God of the sun. That was his name, Ra. That's why Moses is asking, who should I send? They, they, you know, there's Ra, there's, there's Baals, the God of rain and water. These are the gods that we believe are in control of the things that we need and want. So God, who are you? And what God says is, I am. I am who I am. I am. What is God saying? God is saying, I am. Moses, fill in the blank. I am the God of the sun. I am the God of the water and the storm. I am the God of your life. I'm the God of fertility. I'm the God of war. I'm, I'm the God of peace. I'm the God of everything. I'm your creator. I'm your redeemer. I am your king. I am your life. I'm your joy. I'm your wealth, your security, your peace, your hope. I'm Moses. I am. Go. Go tell him I am sent you. The Greek translation of this Hebrew phrase, I am, in Exodus 3 is ego, eimi. It's the same phrase that Jesus uses in Mark, ego, eimi. Right? Jesus is not just saying he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king. He's not just an authoritative teacher that corrects the chief priests and the elders. Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the source of all life. And friends, this is who, who stands before us today, or rather we sit in the presence of, I am, the great I am. C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, uh, he said that the things Jesus said are different from what any other teacher has ever said. A person who said the things Jesus said is either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or an evil deceiver. Right? It makes sense. Jesus saying, I'm God. He's either a wicked person, maybe starting a cult, or he's either crazy, or as Lewis says, he's either, the, lastly, the son of God. Those are the only three choices. That's what Lewis says. Essentially what he's saying is he can't just be a good teacher. He can't be a friend. You either got to love him you got to hate him or you got to think he's crazy. That's it. So if Jesus is God, what this also means for, for you and me, friends, is that Christianity is not uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, uh, sometimes Christianity is kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You know? You walk down the serving aisles of a church or of the Bible and you kind of pick and choose what you want and what you don't want. But if, if Jesus is the I am, that's not how it works. Right? We can't say, Jesus, I want you to help me with this or that, but I don't really want to sacrifice anything for you. You can't say, Jesus, you know, um, I, I love your grace and your forgiveness, but when you draw a different plan for my life, I don't want to trust you with that. If you can't take this away from me, then I, Jesus, you're not the God that I want to worship. In Luke chapter 23, it's a different uh, account right before Jesus dies when he's on trial and uh, Herod comes in and when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. 
and mocked him. See, Herod wants Jesus to do something for him, right? Do, do something, do something great. Do a miracle. And when Jesus refused, Herod treated him with contempt. But we're the same. Right? Jesus is the great I am, the God of Abraham and Jacob and Moses. Uh, but so many times we use God to give us what we want and when he doesn't, we treat Jesus with contempt. But Jesus never said, if you follow me, I'll give you everything you want. He says, no, I am who I am. I am what you want. Eternal life, or you want life, you don't want to die, I am life. Are you worried about security, eternal security? I am eternal security. You worried about self-worth and self-value and love and acceptance and approval from others? I love you unconditionally. You want rest? Are you exhausted from the burdens of life? Come to me and I will give you spiritual rest. And so what we see here is we see Jesus on trial and we see why people killed him. On the one hand, we see people that people killed him because they did not like his authority. On the other hand, we see Herod here, why Herod allowed him to die is because he didn't, Jesus didn't do what Herod wanted. And I think it's so easy sometimes we look at these people and we might see not ourselves in them. And so sometimes we, we see the gospel maybe more for others and not for ourselves. But what we see here, friends, is that we too put Jesus on trial, right? Like I put Jesus on trial too. The only, the only way that I could become a pastor and preach is not because I don't put Jesus on trial uh, as much as you do. No, it's because the blood covers me, you see? We all put Jesus on trial. This brings us to our last point, the power of Jesus. Right, as God in Jesus' ministry calmed storms, he banished sickness, he cheated death, he raised Lazarus from the grave. And Mark 14, 65 tells us that some began to spit on Jesus and they would cover his face and hit him and they say, prophesy. And Jesus did nothing. So what's happening here? Where they're saying, if Jesus, you're a king, show us power. Make us stop. That's what they care about. The only kind of power they know is dominance and force and control. And it's not that Jesus can't make him stop. He chooses not to, though. Because we know in the Gospel of Matthew, when the chief priests and scribes came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that one of those who were with Jesus drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legion of angels? A legion is a Roman military unit comparable to what we call a brigade, 6,000 soldiers, right? But it's 6,000 soldiers times 12. That's a legion. That's the kind of power Jesus had. 
That should make you think, right? Any brokenness you have in your life right now, Jesus has the power to fix that. He could do it, but he chooses not to. Why? Well, you see here, the reason why Jesus doesn't punch back to these soldiers, the reason why Jesus does everything the exact opposite of that human impulse is because Jesus understands power as completely different as you and I understand power. They think it's power, but Jesus knows that's not ultimate power. Ultimate power is not coercive power. The power of force, the power of intimidation, the power of control. Jesus shows here that ultimate power is not controlling people. It's not forcing people. Jesus shows us here that ultimate power at the end of the day is changing people. Changing people. Changing people from the inside out. We try to change people how? By forcing them, right? Yelling at them, <laughs> nagging them, bothering them, right? Getting mad and angry. That's how we try to change people. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you can't, you, that's not how you, that's not real power. Let me show you how you change people. In John chapter 12, it says that Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, when I'm sacrificed, I'm going to draw everyone to myself. I'm going to change everyone. Everyone is not going to be one around me, but after I'm lifted up, they're going to all want to come to me. They're going to change direction. They're going to, their hearts are going to change. What does that mean? Well, when you and I hear about Jesus every week, when we lift Jesus up here, right? Friday, Good Friday. We hear about his sacrifice and his love for you, his forgiveness and his grace for you, right? When we lift the gospel up, what happens? There's an attraction, right? Jesus doesn't attract you by saying, what are you doing, you sinner? Fix yourself. Fix yourself before you come to me. No. He says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. What happens is our heart starts to open up. Our heart starts to go out. Our heart starts to melt and it starts to soften. And what's happening there is something powerful is happening there that no coercion can accomplish. Right? The Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is working through the power of the gospel, through the power of the cross. And so ultimate power is therefore not imposing control or force. Ultimate power, as we see here in the gospel, in Good Friday, ultimate power is gospel power. but there's a catch to gospel power. For gospel power to be present, there has to be a sacrifice. You see? If you want gospel power to be uh, existent in your marriage, if you want gospel power to be existent in your family, if you want gospel power to be existent in the church, then what that means is then, then there has to be sacrifice. People have to sacrifice. Right? There has to be a self-surrendering. That's the power of the gospel. And so the great paradox in Jesus' life here is that there's Pontius Pilate. And Pilate believes that he has Jesus' life in his hands. But if Jesus Christ would have raised just the slightest pinky, his chains would have snapped. Right? 
Fire would have come down and wiped the scoff off the soldiers' faces. Pilate would lie dead on the pavement and all Jesus had to do was snap. But if he did that, what would have accomplished? Nothing. Just judgment for everyone. Death for you and me. Right? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be celebrating Good Friday. There'd be no resurrection. There'd be no victory over sin, no victory of death. But 2,000 years later, when we see what Jesus has accomplished through the power of the gospel, through the power of grace, when we look around in your life, when you look around the world and the spread of the gospel, you see what he's accomplished through his sacrifice. We see then what ultimate power is about. Let me just end with this. You know, in the next chapter after our passage, you know, the, the, the passion of Christ, the, the suffering death of Christ, it's long, can't do it all. But in the next chapter, we're told of a man named Barabbas. He is in prison for murder. He's in his cell. He's getting ready to be crucified. He's thinking about how his life is about to end, all the regrets, all, this, all the mistakes he's made. And he hears a crowd outside and they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas is thinking, this is it. And he hears the soldiers come in, they open the door and the soldiers say, what? Barabbas, you're free. Barabbas will say, how could this happen? Barabbas is guilty, but he's released. Jesus is innocent, but he is killed. Barabbas only gets out because Jesus takes his place. Barabbas is the first person who is saved by the death of Jesus. But the gospel writer Mark is trying to say to us, we are Barabbas too. The devil, Satan, the power of sin and death will say, crucify him, crucify her. But Jesus comes in and says, you're free. We say, how could this be? Jesus, the judge of the entire earth, withholds his judgment. Can you imagine that? Right? You and I, uh, it's hard for us to withhold judgment, but Jesus withholds judgment. And he's the judge of the entire earth. Capital J, judge. Out of his love, Jesus says, I will bear your judgment. I will give you grace. And church, you know, when we come to a night like this, when we come to Good Friday, and we reflect upon the suffering and the death of Jesus, and we, re we reflect on why he died, we understand why he chose to die, and we understand that at the same time, right, we kill him too by ignoring him, by rebelling against him. He knows our heart, and yet, he loves you, yet he forgives you, yet he is your advocate, yet he delights in you. It's a generous grace. It's a powerful grace. It's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that we do not deserve your grace. And so many times, 
um, we do not acknowledge you as God, as the great I am. You're just kind of a, a God on standby. A God in a bottle. A God who gives us three wishes. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, you still say, I died even for that sin. And you tell us today that your death in a supernatural, extraordinary way says, you don't even have to feel guilty for your sin. I mean, that's, that's what the book of Hebrews says, that your death washes away the guilty conscience of ours. <laughs> and you don't do this so that we can just kind of live with some, you know, denial or, or, or you know, just false oh, sense of awareness. No, you do this because it is that cleansing. It is that cleansing of our consciences that communicates to us the power of the gospel that frees us that strengthens us and gives us hope. So I pray that tonight you would remind us of this, this humble gospel message. That you would give us a sobriety to submit to your authority, to humble ourselves. We're always tempted to, to, to be self-righteous, to be judgmental, to yield our authority as if it is the ultimate authority. But would you humble all of us today to submit ourselves to your ultimate authority? to your ultimate judgment, to your ultimate righteousness. Lift yourself up. Draw us near to the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.